The following sermon was delivered by guest preacher, Reverend Dr. Agnes Norfleet, in the sanctuary of Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with us every Sunday, in person or on live stream. For details, go to fapc.org. And now, here's Reverend Dr. Norfleet. From the Gospel of Luke. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property on dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quickly bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Bring a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his, his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him, but he answered his father, listen, for all these years, I have been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, 
who has devoured your property with prostitutes. You've killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. The word of God for the people of God. When I have preached here before, I have been asked by more than a few people, where are you from? It happened in the elevator at the university club this morning. I know my voice gives me away as born and bred elsewhere. I don't sound like I'm from around the corner or that I grew up in the Philadelphia area where I now live. My accent is discernibly Southern although I argue not quite so as from South Alabama or deep in Georgia. I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, and as Southerners are inclined to do, I want to tell you a family story that relates us to one another in a larger kind of extended family way. My home congregation in Richmond was about 300 members when I was growing up. In the baby boom years, with hope for the future, the church expanded the sanctuary to seat more than twice its membership, but it had some natural obstacles to growth. For a suburban church, there was very little parking, and the neighborhood was largely Jewish. Today, any church growth expert would tell you that a church with no parking and neighbors not inclined to walk into worship barely has a chance. Nonetheless, that church was able to attract earnest and devoted pastors who would give it a try. One of them was my childhood pastor who served until about the time I was confirmed, and I adored him. All the children liked him because he carried a roll of lifesavers in his robe pocket and would unfurl the wrapper just so that one would fall into our hand when we greeted him after worship. Later, I wondered if surrounding himself with children was a ploy to protect himself from the grown-ups who seemed to complain incessantly about his preaching in my house anyway. They used words like convoluted and hard to follow. They said he was a wonderful pastor, but preaching was not quite his gift. About the time he moved on to serve another church, I remember asking my mother why they didn't like his preaching, and she said she thought he lacked the gift of taking deep thoughts and speaking them plainly. He could be challenging to understand. She thought he was a kind, caring pastor, but 
about his preaching, I remember her saying he tried really hard, but she thought he had something of an inferiority complex. Now that was an expression in the 60s that thank God we rarely use today. Inferior, I asked. Yes, she said, to his brother who was a great preacher. My childhood pastor, whom we all adored, you see, was Nathaniel Kirkland, the younger brother of the famed Bryant Kirkland for whom this church's chapel is named. I don't have any idea if my mother's amateur psychological assessment holds any truth but I can imagine how hard it might have been for Nat Kirkland to live into the same call to ministry as his famous silver-tongued older brother, Bryant Kirkland, who filled this great pulpit for 25 years, who was known as one of the best preachers in the country, who took the train to Princeton Seminary each week to teach homiletics to a generation of preachers. I can imagine all that hitting some small competitive nerve for a younger, small church pastor brother. Family relations are complicated, aren't they? And you do not have to have a reckless, prodigal runaway in the family to understand that. It is within our families that we first receive love and where we learn how to love. And it's also within our families that jealousies and resentments can fester where Sibling rivalry really is a thing. Psychological studies have shifted emphasis from parent-child relationships to focus on how siblings and generational peers serve an important developmental purpose. A recent study notes that early and middle childhood aggression helps children figure out what is unique and special about themselves. Pushing for preferential treatment from a parent is essential to the healthy development of differentiation which shapes personalities, nurtures self-confidence and individuality. Healthy differentiation ultimately fosters appreciation, respect, and gratitude for the other and influences how we interact with people far beyond our immediate families. That's why Jesus told his family stories, to nurture the big human family, to appreciate, value, respect, and give thanks for all others. To love God and love neighbor with compassion 
and empathy. The story of the prodigal son, perhaps better named the parable of the father and two lost sons, is not so much about a small family drama as it is an invitation to accept God's wide, forgiving embrace and in turn to drop our resentments and jealousies in order to be more loving and more forgiving. This story is less about who we are and more about where we are going as God calls us into a future more akin to what life with God should be. Jesus is always trying to move his followers beyond the accustomed roles we play toward a more hopeful future of love, reconciliation, grace, and peace. How does he do it? Jesus says, once upon a time, and he tells parables to help us think about the life of faith, to wrestle with what is good and true, to invite us into the way of Jesus himself. The word parable comes from two Greek terms. Para means to come alongside and balen means to throw. A parable is intended to be a story that comes alongside our regular understanding of the way things are and then upset it by throwing surprises and twists and turns in our pathway. Now, Jesus will, upon occasion, be very direct. He gives precise words for prayer, for example, and admonishes us to love our enemies, to give to the poor, and to forgive one another. But more often than not, when somebody in the crowd shouts out a big question like, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Or, who is my neighbor? Or, why do you welcome sinners and eat with them? Jesus says, once upon a time. We can surmise that the parable of the father and two lost sons is a story about God's radical willingness to forgive and God's unconditional love, it is that, but is never only that. It is actually a living story in which we are meant to wander around, trying on the shoes of each character, finding ourselves at any given moment in times, assuming the role of one or another. It is a story as complicated and sad and joyful as we ourselves are complicated and sad and joyful. We are the lost and the found. We are the jealous and the resentful 
the forgiving and the grateful. We are the gracious who open ourselves to reconciliation and we are also the ones in need of those outstretched arms of love and forgiveness. I think Jesus speaks to us in family stories precisely because they are not rules or commandments or doctrine. Instead, they are open-ended tales that invite us to struggle with meaning, to make sense of our own small family irritations and the larger human family drama, to wonder about our relationship with God and to work with one another and to see the world from time to time as Jesus himself might see it. Church historian Diana Butler Bass describes Jesus' stories this way. Parables should leave us gasping out in the doctrinal cold and shaking with anger, awe, or surprise. Nothing is as we thought. The whole point of a parable, she concludes, is to disturb and perplex us, shaking up what we believe to be true, all without providing an easy answer or a simple moral to fall back upon. So friends, at this moment in time, in this fraught season of war and wildfire, of climate instability and human incivility, when so many lies are accepted as truth, so much hatred is on display, and so much violence is killing and displacing people in unimaginable numbers. People of faith have to grapple with this fact. Jesus says nothing about climate change or abortion or freedom for women to make choices over our own bodies or people carrying assault rifles into grocery stores and schools and shopping malls. Instead, Jesus says, once upon a time, and he tells us the truth. The truth is, Jesus trusts us to make sense of his stories. His saying, once upon a time, means, I trust you to make sense of who you are in your time and what you need to do to heal the world. I trust you listeners, Jesus says, precisely by the stories he tells, to recognize how God is moving you 
loving you, forgiving you, calling you, challenging you to seek and find the lost, to bind up the brokenhearted, to share your considerable resources with those in need, to witness to the living presence of Christ in your life by populating his stories and thereby learning to walk in his ways. There is a story about the great physicist Albert Einstein, about those who have lived around Princeton University know Einstein's stories are legion. He was traveling from Princeton on a train when a conductor came down the aisle punching tickets of every passenger. When the conductor came to Einstein, he reached in his vest pocket. He could not find his ticket, so he reached in his pants pockets. It wasn't there. He looked in the briefcase but couldn't find it. Then he looked in the seat beside him. He still couldn't find it. The conductor said, Dr. Einstein, I know who you are. We all know who you are. I'm sure you bought a ticket. Don't worry about it. Einstein nodded appreciatively. The conductor continued down the aisle punching tickets and as he was ready to move to the next car, he turned around and saw the great physicist down on his hands and knees looking under his seat for his ticket. The conductor rushed back and said, Dr. Einstein, Dr. Einstein, don't worry, I know who you are, no problem, you don't need a ticket, I'm sure you bought one. Einstein looked at him and said, young man, I too know who I am. What I don't know is where I am going. <laughs> Friends, we know who we are. We are prodigals. All of us, at some time or another, runaways from God trying to make it on our own until some moment of crisis stirs our hearts to find our way back with heaves of sorrow and guilt pressed upon God's beating heart. And we are the ones who know something about sibling rivalry, inheritance disputes, and jealous resentment, and what it is like to stew in our own self-righteousness. We are that elder son, the responsible one, whose indignant finger-pointing gets the best of us from time to time. And God comes to us saying, of of course I forgave the other one, but you too are my precious child. Now it is time for you to forgive your brother. Whether the younger or the elder, we are, all of us, the ones who know what it's like 
to fall into the arms of undeserved and unexpected grace and forgiveness. We know who we are. The question before us today is, do we know where we are going? Are we willing to follow the storyteller into this world of hurt and suffering and need and be the extended human family Jesus invites us to be? More compassionate, more forgiving, more graceful, more loving than we are now. Jesus entrusts the family of faith with this story because he trusts us to discern the way. Amen. Go now into the world in peace. And may we live into the story Jesus tells and thereby follow in the footsteps of Christ himself. As you go, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all and all those you love and all God's children everywhere, this day and forevermore. Amen. We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and given you a measure of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you would like to make a donation to support this audio ministry, please visit fapc.org give. Thank you and blessings to you on this day.